0: the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. Last week, Robert Mueller gave a surprise and highly revealing speech at the Department of Justice, and everybody has commented on it. I even wrote an article myself that was posted on americaoutloud.com. You can read it there. But the thing is, I don't usually write articles responding to an event that just happened because, well, I'm not a reporter. I'm an analyst, and I usually like to wait a day or two until the dust settles before I tell you what I think. But I got pulled into the furor that followed Mueller's speech, and as a result, in my article, I was far too kind to the man who just couldn't stay away from the microphone. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman and this is The Friedman Report. So what did I say that was so bad? Nothing really, except that I didn't say enough and I missed the part where Mueller actually admitted in somewhat coded language to having led a hit squad against President Donald Trump. He was not the fair, honest and unbiased legal defender of America freedom that he was made out to be before the investigation began. Instead, from the beginning of the investigation, as it turns out, his aim was to undermine the president and bring him down in any way he could. Here's what I think happened. After Robert Mueller submitted his report to the U.S. Attorney General William Barr, he sat back and watched the reaction to it. He watched the Democrats, the Republicans, the press, and maybe even the rest of the American people. What did they say? What did they understand that he meant? And at some point, I think he felt that his report, the one with his name on it, was being misrepresented, misinterpreted, and misunderstood. Mueller didn't like the fact that the American public seemed willing to accept that the Mueller investigation had found the president innocent of all charges. Because most of all, he was mindful that this report would go into the annals of American history. And he wanted history to get it right. So he came out of his self-imposed seclusion. And here's what he said. First, he explained that the scope of his mission was to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, including any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. Okay, but wait a minute. Didn't we also have some serious concerns about former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and her questionable relationship with Russian leaders? Didn't she, when she was Secretary of State, work to create joint ventures between American companies and Russia's high-tech version of Silicon Valley? And didn't this lead to serious questions about the possibility of intellectual property theft? And wasn't this going on at about the same time that Bill Clinton gave a speech in Moscow for which he was paid the extraordinary sum of half a million dollars? And wasn't there something else going on, something about the Uranium One deal in which Hillary helped to facilitate the Russian government's purchase of Canadian company Uranium One which had mining stakes in Arizona, Colorado, and Utah? Wasn't that Uranium-1 that agreed to give, quote, not less than 51% quote of the company, unquote, to the mining firm of Rosatom, the Russian nuclear energy agency? And isn't there evidence, according to the Hill.com, that shows the Clintons benefited from this cozy relationship between our Secretary of State and Russia? Isn't this collusion? So why in the world was Mueller only investigating Trump? Here's another question. Well, two, actually. When did this committee know, when did they know that there was no evidence of collusion against Trump or his campaign? And how did this limited mission to investigate collusion turn into the much wider investigation that expanded to include obstruction of justice by the president and his campaign leaders, an investigation that lasted for nearly two years. Okay, so anyway, after the investigators found no proof of collusion, with all their fraudulent evidence and their own illegal activities, by which I mean knowingly using false evidence to get the warrants, Mueller said, and this is the key part, and you've probably heard it many times by now, Quote, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. Unquote. In other words, he said, in effect, If you didn't understand me before, then get it right now. By not exonerating Donald Trump from crimes of obstruction, I was saying that there was reasonable concern that he had, in fact, committed such crimes. This was all in the subtext of what Mueller said that day. Another way of saying that, as former Secret Service agent Dan Bongino said on the Tucker Carlson show last week, Mueller has created a new legal standard called, you ready for this, not Not guilty. Got it? Not, not guilty. It doesn't say guilty. It just says you're not, not guilty. Thank you, Dan. I'll buy that. Mueller excused his team for not making a decision on the obstruction charge by saying that the Justice Department policy is that a sitting president cannot be charged with a federal crime. He said that would be unconstitutional. But here's the thing. They couldn't prosecute him if they found something, but they investigated him nevertheless and harassed his team anyway. In other words, even if you can't prosecute, go ahead and lay the trap, just in case. Mueller's excuse that a president can't be charged while he is in office was the preamble to saying to us, pay attention to what I'm really saying. The fact that we did not find him guilty doesn't mean that we don't believe he is. So what are we to infer from all these words? That the team's final report intended to give us the impression that it is likely that the Trump campaign did commit crimes that can be called the felony of obstruction of justice, and that this needs to be looked into further. This was Mueller's parting shot for the president, a theoretical kick in the shins. He never did explain why or how in the two years of investigation they could not identify any such crimes. And he also didn't explain why, if the policy of the Justice Department is not indict a sitting president, why did he allow his investigation team to spend so much time and so much of the taxpayers' money to investigate something that couldn't be prosecuted? There is an explanation, of course, but he didn't give it. And that is that this was, in fact, from the beginning, a witch hunt. And in fact, it was worse. The investigation was part of one of the biggest political scandals in the history of this country. I I know I've said that before in my article last week, but it's important. The biggest political scandals in the history of this country. We know that the investigators had already compromised their principles and their policies when they used the phony dossier that they knew was phony, which was bought and paid for by the Hillary Clinton Committee and the DNC. And then the investigators presented that document as though it were verified, confirmed evidence so that they could spy on American citizens involved in the Trump campaign. That's illegal from beginning to end, and I do hope that William Barr will investigate that. Once they had done that, my bet is that they thought that their mission was so important that it was worth the risk of further breaking the law. So they went full steam ahead to do everything they could to search for anything that could possibly implicate the Trump campaign and Donald Trump himself, if possible, in actionable crimes. So they harassed good people drove them into bankruptcy, even put them in prison in order to get to the president. But when Mueller went public and made that speech, he revealed what many of us had long believed, that from the beginning, his investigation and the people who were involved with it were determined to find something criminal that the president had done that would open the door to impeachment or worse. And that is why they were willing to accept that famous dossier as Quote, evidence, unquote, even though they knew that it was unverified and fraudulent and they used it to get those warrants. In other words, and I'll say this very plainly, Mueller's team was a hit squad with only one agenda, to bring down a sitting president of the United States. No, no, it's worse. To be willing to break the law in order to give support to a brewing coup by the deep state against the President of the United States. The depth of this plot is so shocking on its face, and it should be shocking to every American. Shame on Congress for letting this happen, unimpeded, and in the light of the tone of congressional hearings for supporting it. The bottom line is this. It was a massive plot to bring down the President, initiated and carried out, by some of the most powerful people in the country. As you begin to peel back this onion of layers and layers of corruption, the people who were at the head of this coup were the leaders of the CIA, FBI, the State Department, the Department of Justice, including the Attorney General herself. And I believe when all is said and done, we will see that it went right up into the Oval Office of President Barack Obama. These were premeditated and criminal activities that targeted our president and his team. And there were real victims. My friends, we are navigating some very dangerous waters and as I have said before, the outcome will decide the future of this country. Mine is one of many voices on America Out Loud. It is possible, I believe, that our combined voices, speaking for the America that we love, can make a real difference. I'm proud to be one small voice in the larger voice of AmericaOutloud.com, and I hope you will keep listening and reading and supporting this network. We are speaking out loud for you. Now, here's a story that received astonishingly little attention in the news, and I'm not really sure why, since it gave some ammunition to the left that they seem to have more or less ignored or played down. Nevertheless, news it was, and in my view, big news, that could certainly change the landscape on the international horizon. The president's negotiations with North Korea's Kim Jong-un began with smiles and the hope to an end to the threat of nuclear North Korea, ended precipitously when Trump walked out of the meeting early and without any agreement. That was several months ago, and for a while we heard nothing more about it, only about Kim's continued efforts to join with South Korea and end the state of war between the two countries. Still, The president continued to say promising things about Kim, including the fact that he really liked him and that they, quote, fell in love, unquote. Well, as they say, the honeymoon had better be over because this week, shocking news came out of the hermit kingdom that the dictator, Kim, had purged his negotiating team. According to a report in the South Korean publication Chosun Ilbo, Kim Jong un has executed several foreign ministry officials, including his special envoy to the United States. And that was, according to the report, as a direct result of the failure of his Vietnam summit with President Trump. Chosun Ilbo quoted an unnamed North Korean official who revealed that, quote, four foreign ministry officials were investigated and executed at Mirim Airport in March, unquote. According to that same report, another official was punished with forced labor and, quote, ideological education, unquote. Other purge victims as well, according to a Reuters translation of that article, included one who had helped oversee the working-level negotiations between North Korea and the U.S., and even included Kim Jong-un's interpreter, who was held responsible Or a translation error. My gosh. To be fair, the story has not been confirmed. And other news agencies have been reporting the same story, but with different, significantly different variations in the details. So we will have to wait for a confirmation of the story. Still, those of us who never trusted Kim are not surprised. Without going into too many details, We remember the sickening purge that he carried out shortly after he assumed power. That included the horrible murder of his uncle and mentor. I had doubts when the president decided to try to make a deal with him, but I have so much faith in the president's negotiating skills that I hope for the best. Then the talks broke down, and now this story came out. It will have to be confirmed. But if it is true and there is enough history that preceded it to make it highly credible, if it is true, then there can no longer be any doubt that what we need with North Korea is not a deal, but a regime change. Kim is a ruler who sadistically murders those people he doesn't like and keeps his people impoverished and starving. He is not a man we should be doing business with. Kim Jong-un needs to be deposed and put in prison for life. His government needs to be completely replaced and the Kim dynasty needs to end. The threat that North Korea in its current form poses to the rest of the world is breathtaking. Its liaisons with Iran, Russia, and China need to be taken very seriously. President Trump made a gallant effort in reaching out to Kim. But if these stories are true about Kim's latest purge, We know what we should have known before. Kim is a thug and a murderer. He is not a man we can make peace with. So I am waiting to hear verification of the report. And if it is true, then to hear from Trump that the negotiations are over, that he will not negotiate with a murderer. And even as I was reporting this to you and giving you my thoughts on Kim Jong-un and our relations with North Korea, I received several news bulletins about this very subject, and they were all about fake news. The headline on CNN.com was this, Executed North Korea diplomat is alive, sources say. The article was written by Will Ripley and updated as of June 4th, and it said North Korea's special envoy to the U.S. is being investigated for his role in the failed Hanoi summit. Kim Jong-un's translator in Hanoi also is in custody and under investigation. That conflicts with another report from North Korean state media, which showed that Kim Jong-chol attended an art performance alongside Kim Jong-un, and it was accompanied by a photograph of the two men sitting together at the performance. My friends, we're dealing with a flurry of competing fake news, and it is from where I sit, impossible to know yet which is true. My own sources tell me that there have been no executions, but that the first report was intended to pressure President Trump. It is true, he said, that several of the people who were named are under investigation, and we will have to wait to learn more about that. Well, we know that international affairs are complicated at best. As the facts become better known, I will be bringing you more. Okay, we're going to take a short break now, but don't go away. I'll be right back with more news and analysis. Well, the Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutLoud.com. Glitcher News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24 7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You know, on an earlier show, when I was talking about the double standards that the Democrats apply to the Republicans, but not to themselves, one of the stories was about former Vice President Joe Biden whose wandering hands always seemed to find the shoulders of some unsuspecting woman who happens to be standing in front of him. Smelling her hair was apparently not uncommon for Uncle Joe either. But he was never reprimanded or, for heaven's sake, sued for harassment. It was just, you know, good old Joe doing his thing. Heaven forbid a Republican should be caught doing such things, but hey, I digress. This is about good old Joe. So now Joe Biden is running for president, and he is astonishingly the front runner by double digits, way in front of the pack of some two dozen contenders. So now, if there's any reason at all for eliminating him from consideration, we should forget about his past uh, aberrations and start with his new position on China. You know China, the country that has been robbing us blind for decades. Over the years, China has stolen an average of $500 billion worth of technology a year, using it to build new products, and then competing with the companies that spent millions to develop them. Only China is selling their copycat products at highly competitive prices, which means made in China, cheaper. IP theft, which includes the use of patents, trade secrets, trademarks, and copyrights, and the technology that they represent. They use them without permission, and they use them in their own products, which they can then sell at an unreasonable profit, because, of course, they didn't have to pay for the R&D. This kind of theft represents a huge loss to American companies who often spend millions to develop their technology. According to the Harvard Business Review, intangible assets, which includes intellectual property, makes up 80% of the value of S&P 500 companies. And the stolen IP by China represents somewhere between $225 billion and $600 billion a year to U.S. companies. The resulting profits from it every year make China the second largest economy in the world. And they are ready to continue to climb until they have overtaken America, which they are planning to do in the next few years. So the president has, correctly I think, placed tariffs on Chinese goods coming into this country. And we'll continue to do so until, among other things, China stops stealing our intellectual property and using it against us. Okay, so here comes Joe. And in a speech in Iowa City on May 1st, he talked about China. And his views were astonishing, to say the least. He said, China is going to eat our lunch. Come on, man. They can't even figure out how to deal with the fact that they have this great division between the China Sea and the mountains in the west. And they they can't figure out how they're going to deal with the corruption that exists within the system. They're not bad folks, folks, but guess what? They're not competition for us. Unquote. "Really, Joe?" Do you suppose that good old Joe has ever even looked at a recent map of China? Does he know what China has been doing in the South China Sea? Hmm. Does he know, for example, that China has been constructing islands there and claiming the international waters as far out as a thousand miles from its southern shoreline as Chinese territory? And that includes, by the way, sections of international waterways that are among the world's busiest and have also been claimed by the Philippines, Vietnam, Taiwan, Malaysia, and Brunei. In fact, Joe, China's astonishing expansion into the South China Sea covers an area of 1.35 million square miles. Did you know that? And over the past few years, Joe, China has expanded the existing reefs and atolls by thousands of acres. Here's a question for you, Joe. Guess what the Chinese are doing on these newly constructed islands in the South China Sea? Hmm? They promised not to militarize them. So would you be surprised to know that they have actually put military installations and sophisticated combat aircraft, surface-to-air missiles, anti-ship ballistic missiles, and jamming technology on these islands? And all that was done in spite of President Xi Jinping's guarantee that China's islands in the South China Sea would not be militarized. Imagine that. And then, Joe... Our own destroyers have to move through the South China Sea regularly in order to challenge China's excessive claims to its ownership of the waterways. And even as the United States and China negotiate, or bicker as the case may be, the U.S. and the U.K. have been carrying out what they call freedom of navigation exercises to keep the waterways open and to challenge China's excessive claims of sovereignty. So China has staked out its claim on a massive section of the resource-rich South China Sea. So what does this mean? Well, there's an annual conference going on right now called Shangri-La Dialogue. It's billed as the Premier Asian Defense Summit. So this year, the United States and China have been arguing over a range of issues, including the contested territory in the South China Sea. China is defending its need to defend these islands, which they insist are Chinese territory. Maybe this comes under the heading of, quote, possession is nine-tenths of the law, unquote. In any case, Joe, you might want to pay attention to this little bit of Chinese trickery. This, quote, great division between the China Sea and the mountains in the West, unquote, that you say they don't know how to deal with? It seems that they are dealing with it very well, thank you, and at the expense of the rest of the world. And Joe, there's something else. Have you forgotten the enormous economic growth that China has experienced at America's expense? What about what I said before about their systematic theft of intellectual property that has been going on for decades and has cost America hundreds of billions of dollars a year? Is that okay with you? And one more thing, Joe. You said, quote, they can't figure out how they're going to deal with the corruption that exists within the system, unquote. You said that, Right. But weren't you the guy who strong-armed the Ukraine in 2016 into firing Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin, who was prosecuting your son? Wasn't it you who bragged about dangling a billion-dollar loan guarantee from the U.S., but only if they fired Shokin? Wasn't it you who said, quote, I looked at them and said, I'm living in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired... You're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired. Well, Joe, if you really want to be president, you need to do two things. First, you need to get smart about ethics and corruption. Check a dictionary, then ask yourself if the American people really want a man who bullies his way around, bribing and threatening people to get what he wants. I know you're a Democrat, so the rules are different, but still. And then, if you still think you should be president, and of course you will because, as I said, the rules are different for the Democrats, you'd better get up to date on the clear and present danger that China actually poses to us in real time. If not in military terms, then certainly in economic terms. This threat that you so casually dismiss is one that can, if not met with the kind of strength that President Trump is showing, it could wipe out our currently thriving economy. Completely. Time to wake up, sleepy Joe, and look at the world as it is. The same kind of policies that led to the Iran nuclear deal won't play in our favor now, if they ever did. And I'm quite sure they did not. Get with the program, Joe. Or get off the train. It's moving on, with or without you. Now here's another big story. On Friday, May 31st, President Trump announced that beginning on June 10th, the United States will impose a 5% tariff on all Mexican goods coming into the United States. And that the tariffs will increase by 5% every month after that, so long as the Mexican government refuses to stop the flow of migrants to the U.S. border. At first, Mexico's president, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, seemed offended and outraged, and he allowed himself to lecture President Trump about America's immigration policy. Among a number of ugly things he said was that Trump was turning the United States into a ghetto which, by the way, shows absolutely no understanding of what a ghetto actually is. And he also told Trump, quote, The Statue of Liberty is not an empty symbol, unquote. No, it is not, Mr. Obrador. But when Emma Lazarus wrote the words, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, She never meant that we should sanction masses of illegal immigrants overwhelming our immigration system, flooding our cities, and breaking our laws the very moment they set foot on American soil. It seems that Abrador has been very happy to allow his country to be a pass-through for tens of thousands of people from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. He even facilitated their travel through the country with little apparent concern, as far as I could tell, for what this was doing to his northern neighbor. So President Trump said, Enough! And he tweeted this, quote, I'm very disappointed that Mexico is doing virtually nothing to stop illegal immigrants from coming over our southern border. Mexico's attitude is that people from other countries, including Mexico, should have the right to flow into the U.S. and that U.S. taxpayers should be responsible for the tremendous costs associated with this illegal migration. Mexico is wrong and I will soon be giving a response, And so he did. As soon as he announced the new tariffs, the stock market took a tumble and the talking heads on every channel jumped on it. Most were, of course, opposed to it, as they oppose everything our president does. But I have no doubt that President Trump is very serious about levying a 5% tax on Mexican goods and on adding 5% every month if they do not start cooperating with us. And I think, I think it's a very good idea. Obrador needs to apply enforcement against the endless throng of illegal immigration coming from his southern border to our southern border, because our national well-being and security depends on it. So President Trump's warning is timely and deadly serious. And apparently, Obrador understands this because on Monday, he appeared to change his mind. It seemed that the Mexican government was suddenly serious about complying with Trump's demands in order to avoid a trade war. At first, there were reports that President Obrador had, quote, hinted his country could tighten migration controls, unquote, in order to neutralize Trump's threat to impose tariffs on Mexican goods. But it was not hopeful when Obrador insisted in the very same interview that Mexico has already enhanced immigration enforcement along Mexico's southern border and that officials have been working diligently to turn back the endless line of migrant caravans and cut the number of visas they give out and deport known criminals, including MS-13 gang members? This apparent contradiction is probably to be expected in this kind of discussion, and I would expect to see it in any international negotiation, as we do, in fact, with China, for example. Honestly, I think Abadur is walking a fine line possibly to appease all sides. But the most important and optimistic thing that he said was this, quote, we're doing all we can to reach a deal through dialogue. We're not going to get into a trade war, a war of tariffs and of taxes, unquote. And to that end, American and Mexican officials are meeting at the White House this week. They say they hope to come to an agreement before the tariffs are implemented, which means by June 10th. President Trump says that if a deal is not reached, his tariffs will be imposed and enforced. I don't think that's what Aberdour wants. But it would be a very good idea if he doesn't stay at the table and reach a deal with the president. This past week saw another horrible mass shooting. This time it was in Virginia Beach. It's something we've seen before. But it never fails to shock us to the core that a man or woman so distraught or angry or confused or driven by ideology would just shoot down innocent people, people he may be hated or didn't even know. What drives a person to do that? We may never know what drove that man to kill 12 people in that terrible shooting. And it will no doubt happen again in another building, in another city, in another state, in another country and the victims will be our sister, our uncle, our neighbors, people we knew from church, and other people we didn't know at all. There is, as always, a movement that rises up after every event like this that calls for, that demands an end to gun violence. Heck, I'm against gun violence, too. But they always, in what appears to be a knee-jerk reaction, they always call for new and more stringent gun laws. I'm not sure that's the answer. And my question to you my friends is this is the problem gun violence or is it just violence if a person is ready to use a gun to commit a crime but a gun were not available were he or she be willing to use a knife or a bat or a rope a car poison or is it just his hands Should we be considering whether it is violence that should be a public health problem and one that should be studied? I've always heard the argument that if you make guns illegal, criminals will get them anyway, and the rest of us will be far more vulnerable without a means to defend ourselves. I've also heard that in neighborhoods where gun ownership is common, the crime rate, is much lower than in other areas. I don't know the answer. But I also wonder what it is that makes us more violent. Is it the stress in our lives? The loss of communication that comes from attaching ourselves to our electronic devices instead of communicating with real people? Does that disassociate us from the real world? Or is it the games or movies that desensitize us to violence? What do you think? I would love to hear from you with your opinions on this or any other subject that I talk about on the show. Send me an email and let me know what you think. Your opinion matters a lot to me, and I think to our other listeners as well. And I think we can learn from each other. Send your email to Ilana, that's I-L-A-N-A, Ilana at AmericaOutloud.com. Let's start a conversation. Okay, we're going to take another short break, but don't go away because I'll be right back. I'm going to ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's www.thewoundedblue.org. That is the website for the organization that is the National Association for Injured and Disabled Police Officers. It is a support organization for these men and women who have given so much in the line of duty. We desperately need your help to raise money to uh, get this movement going. And uh, if you are a GoFundMe-er, go to GoFundMe, look up The Wounded Blue, and you can give there as well. But check it out, please, and also check out our film, The Wounded Blue, on Amazon.com. This story makes me furious. It came out at the beginning of the week and I am outraged. It is the result of the ugly political climate that we live in today that we talk about all the time that has poisoned the minds of the people in power and has empowered them to find comfort in the brutal harassment of others with whom they don't agree by abusing their power to hurt other people. Paul Manafort, was once the chairman of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Today he is facing prison time in one of the country's most notoriously brutal prisons, Rikers Island. Seventy-year-old Manafort, who is already serving a seven-and-a-half-year prison sentence on bank and tax fraud charges, is now scheduled to be transferred to New York City's infamous Rikers Island later this week. This is because New York City District Attorney Cy Vance, a Democrat, has made it his mission to bring Manafort down in the most public and humiliating way. He is also putting this man in mortal danger by sending him to one of the most notoriously brutal and dangerous prisons in the country. Since Rikers was built in 1932, The 400 acre island, which is located near Manhattan, has been home to some of America's most violent criminals. They include David Berkowitz, who was known as Son of Sam, and Mark David Chapman, who murdered John Lennon. Rikers holds about 10,000 inmates, but nearly 80,000 cycle through the prison during the year. It is well known for its poor conditions and the corruption of the New York City Department of Corrections staff who work there. They're famous for their fondness for using unnecessary force against inmates, particularly juvenile offenders, and for not interfering in the inmate-on-inmate violence that occurs there all the time. After Manaford was convicted in Washington, D.C., Vance indicted him in Manhattan on state charges, including... Residential mortgage fraud, conspiracy, falsifying business records, and scheme to defraud. A New York State judge ordered Manafort's transfer to Rikers at Sy Vance's specific request. And according to reports, he will be held in solitary confinement for the duration of his stay for his own protection. The move is expected to happen as early as Thursday, but it may be delayed by legal efforts to postpone and prevent it. This frontal attack against Manafort was presumably a backup plan just in case President Trump intended to pardon Manafort because a presidential pardon power does not extend to state crimes, only to federal crimes. So when Manafort was convicted, it made him the first campaign associate of President Trump to be found guilty of any crime by a jury as part of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe. U.S. District Judge T.S. Ellis said, the guidelines for sentencing Manafort to between 19 and 24 years in prison were excessive for this case. Instead, he sentenced Manafort to seven and a half years in prison for federal tax frauds, bank fraud, and foreign lobbying violations stemming from two other cases. He is now serving his sentence at the Federal Penitentiary in Loretto, Pennsylvania. But back in New York City, it was far from enough for Vance, who held back on his indictment until after Manafort was sentenced in the Mueller investigation. At that time, Vance said rather self-righteously, no one is beyond the law in New York. So after Manafort was convicted in Virginia, a New York grand jury charged him with 16 counts. The New York prosecutor wants Manafort to be held liable for restitution and to forfeit properties that add up to nearly $30 million. And sending him to Rikers, that was purely vindictive. They say that Manafort's age, he is 70, is not a factor in mitigating his sentence because it does not eliminate the possibility that he may return to his previous pattern of criminal activity, which he can do if he's 70, of course. This is white-collar stuff. But here is the point, and this is what makes me so furious. His crimes, bad as they may be, were white-collar crimes. They weren't violent. Nobody got physically injured or killed. Rikers is a place for violent offenders and street crimes. Manafort's crimes were neither. Vance's plan was simple. He wanted to indict Manafort on state crimes rather than federal crimes because that would put him beyond the reach of a trump pardon. you see he's he's really vindictive it's not there is not uh, any any mercy there. Vance's vindictiveness ignored Manafort's health problems. solitary confinement is its own kind of torture. The Alexandria detention center. In Northern Virginia, where Manafort was held for for months before his trial, he was kept in protective custody, which is not solitary confinement, but which meant he was kept away from the others except for a few hours a day for his own safety. Manafort's lawyers said that this had led to a deterioration in his health during the period before his federal trial in Virginia. So, the move to Riker's would require Manafort to be in solitary confinement for his own safety because this is really a violent place. But solitary confinement in Rikers would be much worse than what he had experienced in Virginia. Manafort's attorneys are not asleep. They are working hard to find solutions for the traps that are being set for him. For one thing, the state charges are likely to be challenged under the legal concept of double jeopardy which prohibits the prosecution of someone twice for the same offense. Now, Vance is the son of former Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, who served under President Jimmy Carter. He is a Democrat who was first elected District Attorney of Manhattan in 2009. He has been strongly criticized for favoring the rich. For example, he refused to prosecute Harvey Weinstein, even though he had confessed And he was known for harshly punishing the poor and the helpless. For example, he has frequently been accused of hiding the evidence that the lawyers of poor defendants need to defend their clients. Nice. The vindictiveness of this plot against Manafort is vicious and unforgiving. It is also unforgivable. But Vance, who has built his career on his icy lack of concern for those who fall under his jurisdiction and also by building his political security in the right places. He is in a good place for the moment. Justice will not likely come for him any time soon. But what he is doing to Paul Manafort is cruel and evil. It's inexcusable. And it is my hope that somebody will stop it before the consequences are irreversible. And here's an interesting story about how the nation's courts have been playing fast and loose with the president's agenda by preventing him from carrying out his executive orders this has happened time and time again over the last two plus years it all started with what was erroneously called trump's muslim ban in 2017 president trump wrote a succession of three executive orders that banned foreign nationals from seven countries from visiting the United States. These countries were breeding grounds for terrorism. The list included five predominantly Muslim countries, hence the name, the Muslim ban. But the object, he said, was to keep potential terrorists from entering the country in the large swell of migrants seeking asylum. All three of the president's executive orders were stopped by the courts. The object, he said, was to keep potential terrorists from entering the country, lost in the swell of migrants seeking asylum. All of the president's executive orders were stopped by the courts, one after another. Then in June 2017, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear a challenge to the third of President Trump's executive orders. In the end, the Supreme Court upheld his third executive order. Since then, President Trump has been under enormous judicial pressure since nearly everything he has been trying to accomplish has been challenged in courts, friendly to the liberal cause, and at least disrupted or delayed, if not completely blocked. But this news story comes with a twist. It's about a district judge who supported President Trump's legal position and upheld the president's effort to use emergency military funding to build the border wall. So here's the story. Washington, D.C. District Court Judge Trevor McFadden threw out a lawsuit that wanted to prevent Trump from reallocating military funds to help build the border wall. And the judge's reasons are good fodder for discussion. If only the right and the left could actually discuss these things. The judge's reasoning was that this was a political dispute, not a legal one and that, therefore, the politicians who filed the lawsuit had no standing to make any legal case. See, that's interesting. When Congress refused to fund the border barrier which Trump had promised to the American people, the president declared a national emergency along the southern border and unilaterally reallocated $6.7 billion from other projects to the border wall. Nancy Pelosi accused the president of quote, stealing appropriated funds, unquote. But Judge McFadden ruled that the case, quote, presents a close question about the appropriate role of the judiciary in resolving disputes between the other two branches of the federal government. The court declines to take sides in this fight between the House and the president. Good for him. Now, Chances are that you may already know that just a week ago, U.S. District Judge Haywood Gilliam in Northern California issued an injunction against the administration to prevent the use of reallocated funds for projects in Texas and Arizona. So here we have it. The business of judge shopping is no joke. Judge Gilliam in California was appointed by Barack Obama, and Judge McFadden was appointed by Donald Trump. Does that matter? It really shouldn't, but it clearly does. A recent article in the Washington Post reported that federal courts have ruled against Trump administration policies at least 70 times in the last two years. That is unprecedented, and is probably because there is so much antagonism against this president that his opponents will challenge him as much as they possibly can. But consider this, a judge should be impartial, and his or her judgments should be guided by the law, not political opinion. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, for example, has been the go-to court when it comes to protecting a liberal agenda, and it has been called the most liberal court in America. A number of high-profile cases against Trump have been brought before the Ninth Circuit Court. They were brought there because of the likelihood of a favorable decision. And here's why. This district is very large and encompasses nine mostly liberal states, so there are multiple options when choosing that court in which to try the case. And if you have the right to file in any one of those states, you can have your case heard in the Ninth Circuit. Here's one landmark case, for example, which favored a tiny minority of one against the rest of us, and helped to give the Ninth Circuit its reputation. It was the case of Newdow versus U.S. Congress. In this case, it came before the Ninth Circuit Court, Michael Newdow, on behalf of his daughter, challenged the recitation of the U.S. Pledge of Allegiance in public schools in Elk Grove, California. The court found that the practice of leading students in the recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance The Pledge of Allegiance amounted to an unconstitutional establishment of religion and an unlawful interference with Newdow's right to educate his daughter in accordance with his own religious beliefs. Wow. But what about the rest of us? Isn't my child entitled to the same rights as Newsom's daughter? Where does my child's right end and his daughter's begin? Because I want my child to recite the Pledge of Allegiance every day, and I believe that this is one nation under God, so I'm happy to have her say that too. And that's the point. All too often, the liberal position negates the rights of all other Americans who don't agree with them. At what point did a minority of one become the loudest voice in the room, the one that dictates the law of the land? This is what I call the tyranny of the minority, and we're seeing a lot of that lately. You know, there was a case in Lexington, Massachusetts, a few years ago, when the father of a kindergartner discovered that his little girl was being read to from a book called something like I Have Two Mummies. He was a believing Christian, and he was horrified. So he complained to the school At first, they humored him, and then they refused to talk to him. But the one thing they did not do was to respect his opinion and try to find a solution that would help resolve the dilemma. Their view was, you accept this, period. No choice. So what solution do you think they found? They forbade him to come to school. That included parent-teacher meetings, PTA meetings, school programs, all of it. Honestly, I couldn't believe it at the time. If it had been my kid, she would have seen the inside of that school for the last time. The idea that the gay agenda, that's what we called it at the time, was something we not only had to accept, but we had to incorporate into our lives was just not acceptable. And we had to indoctrinate our children that they needed to accept a gay lifestyle into their lives. There's a great difference between accepting that other people are different from us, that's life, it always has been, but to be forced to teach our children to embrace a lifestyle that we do not believe in when they go to public school, and I emphasize the word Public, which means for everybody, that is, in my opinion, unconscionable. I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that children should learn their life values at home. Although today many of those values are gone, they're just not being taught anymore, like good sportsmanship, for example, and good manners, and saying a little prayer at bedtime and learning to understand that people are different from each other and that we should respect them. And we should hope that they will respect us. It doesn't always work out, but it sure is worth the effort to try. So let's swing back to the original point. That is what's happening here in America that is frustrating the president in his efforts to keep the promises that he made to the American people in 2016. Largely, I think he's succeeding. But it is wrong that people should be able to pick their judge in order to be able to push their agenda and frustrate their opponent. So one of the things that Trump can do with his Republican Senate is bring balance to the court system with appointments of more conservative judges during his first term. Since assuming office and until today, the president has appointed two Supreme Court justices, 41 U.S. Court of Appeal judges, and 69 US district court judges. This, at least, is a start. The president has a tough road ahead of him, but he seems up to the job. He's tough too. So as the second half of 2019 unfolds, it will be very interesting to watch how many of his dreams and his plans and his hopes for America begin to come true. Well, that's it for today, my friends. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I enjoy our time together and I look forward to being with you again. Keep your emails coming and tune in again next week to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. This is Ilana Friedman and you've been listening to The Friedman Report.